Welcome to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, Season 2, Episode 4. My name is Michael Bond, and I will be one of your hosts today. I'm sitting here with Pastors Mel Massengale and Todd Stanley. Hello, hello. Good greetings. So real quick. That's the best I can. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> that, greetings. That's, <laughs> salutations. That, that's, that's a good one. Um, so real quick, before we jump in, I want to invite you to give this podcast a five-star rating and write us a review. We're Only on Apple. Five Only five-star, please. Right. Uh, if you give us below a five-star, I will be contacting you and we'll ask you about that. Uh, <laughs> We are on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, share this on social media and tell your friends about it. Remember to subscribe at summitpodcast.church forward slash subscribe. This is the network where all of our Summit podcasts are distributed. Uh, subscribing will allow you to receive email notifications every time we release new content here at Summit Church. Today, we are going to discuss leadership development in a rural setting. So a couple questions we might talk about are, how do you identify people with high kingdom potential? Uh, how do you build human resources with a smaller talent pool? And what should the process look like once, this, once a high kingdom potential person has been identified? And all of these questions and more are coming up, but first is this week in church leadership. It feels like we should have some sort of like audio bumper for that. Bum, like, bum, dun, yeah, dun, yeah. yeah. We could put something, maybe like a Darth Vader music or we, we can fix that in post. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so Todd, you want to go first? With yeah, this I can go first. Uh, so here's a, here's an article I found. Uh, a Mississippi Baptist church has become the first Southern Baptist church to accept cryptocurrency for donations and tithes. Uh, so apparently back Bay Baptist church in St. Martin's, Mississippi, announced at the end of September that they were going to start accepting digital currencies after COVID-19 made it difficult to collect traditional payments. Uh, yeah, I, I don't honestly know enough about cryptos to really speak intelligently about this, but what do you guys think? Uh, I knew it was coming at some point, right? It felt, feels inevitable that uh, more people in our churches are going to be interested in this stuff and want to know how to give that way and things like that. But. Yeah. Yeah. I can't decide whether or not cryptocurrency is going to become a superior currency. So it does seem like it has some attributes to it. Like for instance, it doesn't respect the borders of sovereign nations. So it's worth the same no matter where you are in the world. So uh, you can, that prevents countries from doing certain things like currency manipulation and devaluing their currency and things that currency that is specific to a particular country. Uh, those, those are weaknesses that those types mm -hmm. of currencies would have. And uh, cryptocurrency doesn't have that. It's also very hard to, um, to fake. It's very hard to, what's the term I'm missing the counterfeit term. counterfeit. Yeah. Counterfeit. And I think the reason is because, and I don't know the, the nuts and bolts behind this, but I think that each Bitcoin has its own, uh, digital DNA, mm -hmm. so to speak. And mm -hmm. so uh, it's uh, it's permanent. It can't be deleted and it can't be replicated. And so you can't add to it. Uh, and so those might be reasons why uh, that's the wave of the future. And if that's the wave of the future, I think churches should definitely get on board with it. They don't want to miss that train. Well, um, we're, it feels like we're talking more about cryptocurrency instead of the, the church aspect, but I will say this, um, you know, some cryptocurrency I would is, is, uh, the theory is that it's inflation proof because 
you can't just make more of it. Now there's quite a bit of cryptocurrency that they can just produce more of whenever. Um, and so that, that would defeat that argument. But I know, you know, with, um, Bitcoin, for instance, there are so many Bitcoin in the world. There's so many Bitcoin that will ever be in the world and that's it. It's fixed. And so it feels like it's uh, less prone to all of a sudden the valuation just dropping other than the fact that people just agree that the valuation is not there anymore. So, so the day that everybody just goes, yeah, this is fake money. It's not real. It's monopoly money. That's when the bottom could drop out of the market on that. But, um, but as far as churches receiving it and accepting it, I don't see why they shouldn't. I think that's smart. I don't, I, I, if somebody donated Bitcoin to us, I would not sit on it and hope that it would go up. That feels risky. Mm-hmm. Um, I would cash it in and leverage it for kingdom purposes. You know, like, let's go. But, um, but yeah, I think it's it's great. Why not? Well, so to maybe kind of get back to church leadership in regard to this. So my question would be, because I think that it's inevitable that there will be people uh, in the church who, you know, want to want to talk about comparisons with the mark of the beast that think that it's, you know, um, you know, because there's a lack of understanding about it, mm-hmm. you know, it could. So how do you lead well in regard to those kinds of things? Um, I don't know that it's much different than other technologies that have come prior, but what's what what should pastors do in that regard? Uh, so I think that it's probably uh, runs through the same vein as like uh, theology surrounding vaccinations and things like that. Like uh, I think that there's probably always in each generation, there's going to be uh, mountains made out of molehills and there's going to be uh, misunderstandings among congregations that need to be addressed and need to be sorted through. And that might be one of those things. Um, I think that one reason why churches might want to adopt cryptocurrency that would fall in line more with church leadership than the currency itself is that we don't know if banks are going to start monitoring uh, bank accounts and deciding ethics behind what people and organizations purchase. And if, if for instance, Visa says, okay, we're going to start monitoring bank accounts. And if Mm -hmm. you make purchases that we deem to be hateful, we're shutting down your account. Yeah. And something like that would be much more difficult to do uh, if the church was operating on cryptocurrency. And so it, it might even play into that uh, issue, Todd, of like, there might be a lot of skepticism surrounding it at first among congregations until they see the need for it. Like if they start believing or seeing that their bank accounts with U.S. dollars are being monitored mm. or, you know, by people that they don't want monitoring them and they see, okay, this is a way out of that then maybe they would uh, maybe they would be less hesitant and less resistant to adopting that new wave of currency. Well, and, and you bring up an interesting point. I saw, I read an article just a couple of days ago that Venmo um, is now reporting all transactions to the IRS. So if it's, if you're just transferring money friend to friend, but if there's an exchange of goods and services, they're reporting all those transactions to the IRS so that they they're being taxed now. So the IRS is sending you a 1099 if you if you generate more than six hundred dollars from that. So it's like they know. Um, and so you know, uh, I think the world we live in and the world we're heading toward is a world 
that you kind of uh, referred to that it's like, okay, yeah, we don't like that you're giving to a hate group. And a hate group could be something like a church that speaks out against, you know, LGBTQ issues or, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, that's an interesting point you bring up. Yeah. So the next uh, article that I had here was one from Kerry Newhoff's blog. Um, and he was talking about new metrics for church growth. Friend of back 40. That's Kerry right. Newhoff. Yeah. As a side note, and I, I'm not proud of this, by the way, he put out an article and uh, one of our pastors here, Kendall, uh, pointed out to me that uh, this article outlined like seven or eight dimensions along which you can identify a bad leader. And he told me that I fit seven of them. And so I was... <laughs> Not yeah. all eight. Not all eight. I think. That, I think <laughs> that I got, come with kindness. I think I got out of the eighth one on a technicality. So um, the, the the conversation is going to continue on that. That's, that's good to know. <laughs> um, so anyway, this uh, this blog post on new metrics for church growth. He identifies four of them, and so what I'll do is I'll just list the four of them and summarize them quickly, and then we can talk about the value of following these or not following these. The first one is what he calls budget pie. And this is how much of church income is being spent on benevolence projects that directly impact the community. And uh, the idea being that where you spend your money reveals what you value. So we can just start with that one. Um, what do you think about like looking more at uh, where the money is going back out versus how much money is coming in? Yeah. Well, and I think, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I talked to pastors about that. You know, if you, um, a simple, the simplest way for you to start to turn your church around is change the focus from inward to outward. And that's one of the common denominators yeah. among every church that's shrinking and struggling um, is that uh, a lot of times their focus is inward. So it's like, well, if you want to have an outward focus, start um, start giving, start you know looking toward the needs of your community. And so I think that's an easy way to measure that is to go, okay, you know, hey, we were spending 1% of our budget on things that were going on outside of our church, reaching people, serving people, blessing people, whatever. But now we're spending 12% of our budget and it's like, okay, that's measurable. And yeah. it might not translate into butts in the seats, but it's going to translate into impact in the kingdom. And so, and I would say it's not just money that you're saying, okay, we're, we're, we're going to pay this family's gas bill. That's benevolence. But we even count, um, you know, Steph McCoy is our missions and outreach pastor, and we count a pretty significant portion of her salary and benefits toward what we do for outreach because most of her job is how do we reach people who are not part of our church, who don't sit in the pews, who don't, you know. And so it's not just purely benevolence dollars. It's, it's hey, what are what kind of energy are we leveraging toward, you know, those kind of things. So, yeah, I, I like that a lot. The second one is engagement rates. So this would be over against attendance rates. And the engagement rate uh, measures how many people are getting involved in projects which are core to the church's vision over against simply attending. And so the idea being that you look at people who are coming to church and ask, okay, are they just coming to church or are they uh, serving? Are they getting involved? And I think this one's pretty standard for a lot of churches to look at. Um, But can you talk a little bit about the benefit of looking at engagement rates instead of uh, looking at attendance rates, because you might have a really high attendance and have a really low engagement rate. And do you think that there are some pastors who would look at that and be like, well, as long as my attendance stays up, I'm safe. I'm okay. And maybe not lend as much weight to the engagement rates. For sure. I mean, 
and I, I think it's tempting for any of us to look at, you know, the number of people gathered on a weekend, if the giving is, you know, healthy, that kind of thing. It's easy for us to look at those things and feel a certain amount of security in that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so then we lose sight of, well, are these people growing to know Jesus? Are these people engaged in the mission of the kingdom of God? It, which is a way more critical question than whether or not they show up on the weekend. And, you know, and so, um, yeah, I think it's it's easy for us to, lo- to lose sight of those things. We have to always uh, keep that in the forefront of the conversation. You know, the whole Simon Sinek, you know, start with why thing. We have to ask why we exist and then... Um, ask how that's impacting the people that we serve. Yeah. And I think it's, um, if, if, if the real metric we're looking at is weekend attendance, then we are little more than event, you know, production directors, you know what I mean? Like we are just producing an event and people are showing up. Um, and so if we're not engaging people in the mission and vision of God, then that's a problem. And, um, and I think we've, we've been, lulled into this where we that's what we measure we measure dollars and humans nose and uh, noses and nickels as some people say um but but really uh i think engagement is important and i think any church could measure engagement we just don't always want to because we can look at okay how many people are serving how many people yeah. are in you know some sort of discipleship track how many people are in a new believer track whatever it is you know um how many people are engaged in those things and that'll give you an idea to some degree or another. And at our church too, we look at giving, not just in terms of the overall dollars, but Hey, are people giving? Cause that is a measure of discipleship to some degree, cause it's not a generosity issue in churches. It's a discipleship issue. So are people engaged in giving regularly and growing in that? And if they are, then that probably means they're growing in their faith. So I th- think there's lots of ways we can measure engagement. If you're willing to look at your metrics and look at the different things you're doing, you can figure out, Hey, how are we doing as far as engagement goes? Yeah, and I don't think it's either or. I mean, you want to yeah. be attracting as many people as possible. There's there's nothing wrong with that, right? Um, but if that becomes the end-all, be-all, then, you know, you've lost sight of the real goal. Yeah, and I think the traction part leads to number three on the list, too, if you want to. Oh, yeah. So the third one is integration rates. And this is something, Pastor Mel, that you might want to talk about the three points that you share with us in the pre-service meetings every every weekend now. Um, The idea being that how many people are building new relationships with each other through the church and are these relationships leading to deeper involvement in the core projects? Yeah. So um, in our pre-service meeting every weekend, and this isn't original to me, I didn't make this up. I'm not that smart, but um, a friend of mine uh, pastors a large church in, uh, in Texas, and he's worth a follow. His name's Josh Howerton. Josh shared this one time, and I loved it. But um, basically, I share these three things with our st- our, our team in pre-service meeting. Um, uh, and a solo person in our gathering is an emergency. So if we see somebody who's by themselves, sitting alone, walking through the lobby alone, uh, that's a problem. We need to set aside whatever we're doing and go engage them, connect them, you know, get to know them. Um, because there's a chance they're new, um, and that's even more important because a, a new alone person is definitely a problem. Yeah. So we want to get to know them. Um, the, 
The second thing we say is friends can wait. So what we tend to do is huddle with our friends and, oh, I don't get to see them very often. But it's like, yeah, but that's more about you. Uh, connecting to a new person is more about the kingdom. It's more about how do we integrate? How do we connect them to opportunities? And then the third thing is connect them to somebody else. Um, you know, con- connect somebody you meet to somebody else. So it might be something like you, you meet them, you find out that they're a veteran. This was a situation with me a few weeks ago. I met somebody, found out they were a veteran. I was like, man, I would love to introduce you to Vanessa. She and her husband are both veterans. She's on our team. You know, Dave leads our security team. I'd love to introduce you to these guys. And it was just an opportunity to connect them deeper in a, in a more, uh, more organic way to our church. And it was like, I didn't send them through growth track or, you know, it was more about, I want to connect you relationally. Yeah. Um, and those are the things that actually get people into growth track and mm-hmm. into, you know, those other things. So, yeah, it's really good because it builds instant familiarity. So, uh, you, you someone mm-hmm. makes a friend at church on their first day at church while well, the second time at church, they have someone there now. Yeah. And so it's even easier for them to come back and, and to get more involved and it, it provides community and all those things. And yeah. I think that one of the, the, the wisdom behind, uh, reminding how you do reminding us you know, before each service to do this is because it's one of those things that because we, we live in godly community all the time, it can seem like a given. It mm-hmm. can seem like that's just the way it is. And then we can forget to sort of go out of our way or we can become so duty driven that, you know, we're thinking about, okay, I need to check all these boxes. And so we miss the the relational element of it. And, um, you know, and it's not like, it's not like the pastors here are new pastors, you know, mm-hmm. they're experienced pastors, but yeah. it's, it still bears reminding that constant sort of reminder to, it's, it's almost like a training uh, to make that part of a habit. And I think that's really good. Well, and even for me, I would say um, I was having a conversation this last weekend in our lobby and it was somebody that's been around a while and that I know, and it wasn't a deep, meaningful conversation. And I saw somebody that was alone and that, you know, I say it, but it went through my head. I, hey, friends can wait. And so I said, hey, would you give me one minute? There's somebody over here I haven't met. Oh, sure, no problem. And your friends are going to give you grace. And yeah. so I did. I, I went over and had that conversation. And so it was. It was a good reminder even for me. Like, I'm the one saying it, but I needed to be reminded of it mm-hmm. too. Yeah. So the fourth metric is community feedback. And so the idea here is, does the community agree with your own in-house evaluation of how you are benefiting the community? So like every church probably would like to think that they're benefiting the community, but does the community agree with that evaluation? I don't, I don't, I don't know that I have a take on that. I mean, I think it's definitely, it's definitely a good idea. I mean, if you ask somebody in your community, you know, how do you, how do you, do you feel like our church is a benefit to our community? And they go, what church? Right. I mean, that's a problem, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? Never, and yeah, so I've never heard of that church before. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, yeah, we need to know what it, if the, for just for us, for example, I feel like if the people who live in Indiana, whether they attend Summit Church or not, if they're, and, and obviously you're not going to get a hundred percent across the board for this, but you, I, I want people to be able to say this city is better because some of the church is here. Yeah. And, um, the only way you find that out is to ask. Mm-hmm. The only way you find that out is to be engaged with the people of your community, find out what their needs are and do what you can to try and, and meet those felt needs. And if you're not doing that in a, in a tangible way, then when 
when people come up against a crisis or when they start to to feel the spiritual need that that they you know that was attached to a felt need you know does that make sense mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like yeah. when those things start to happen you're not going to be the one they ask mm-hmm. you're not going to be the one they come to yeah. and so if you're not being of a benefit to your community in a, in a in a like a practical way they're not going to come to you for their spiritual need either because they yeah. don't believe you care yeah you know yeah that's good um and and i would say if you have to ask that's You're probably not that's, doing it. That's probably a problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you have to ask the question, hey, would anybody notice if we disappeared? Because we know it because people tell us, you know, we're engaged enough in the community. We hear from police officers. We hear from teachers. We hear from people that we are intentionally reaching going, oh, my gosh, thank you so much. Yeah. You know, like, man, this makes a difference. So we hear that pretty regularly. But one of the things, and I think any pastor can do this, um, maybe it's not the pastor because especially if you're in a small town, uh, you might not be able to get away with it, but have somebody. And I do this whenever I go to another church. Um, if if they've asked me to come in and speak or if they've asked me to come in and do some coaching, I will always stop in gas stations in town and I'll ask them, hey, tell me what you think about South Point. You know, yeah. have you ever yeah. heard of South Point Church? Uh, oh, yeah. Is that the church over? Yeah. Yeah. What do you know about that? I'm, I'm, I'm going over there today. Do you know anything about it? And just ask them questions and they'll That's tell good. you, you know, um, if you don't know what your vision is and what your mission is, I bet you can ask some people in your community and they'll tell you what it actually is if, yeah. you know, and so that's a good exercise to do. And so maybe a pastor could ask somebody in their church, hey, just ask, you know, when you go into Walmart, ask somebody, hey, do you know anything about this church? What do you know? What do you think? And you're going to get some feedback and you might hate the feedback, but you'll never be able to shift if you don't know what the feedback is. So yeah, I yeah. like that. I like that a lot. Well, and I think too, uh, and maybe this is a parallel issue, but it is possible and necessary, I would say, for people who may be on the other side of the fence from you to know and believe that you care about the community that they live in and you care about mm-hmm. them we're we're in a climate where like it doesn't feel like we care much for the people we disagree with mm-hmm. and and I just don't think there's a place for that in the church yeah and, yeah you know i've i've got a friend that um they will from time to time they will pay people that don't go to their church to come to their church and be a secret shopper um and they'll give them a, a list of criteria hey here's what i want you to judge your experience based on i'll give you 100 bucks if you'll just show up and and, uh, you know, maybe it'd be 50 bucks or a gift card or something like that. But if you really want to know what the feedback is from, you know, from an outsider, that's, uh, that would be simple to do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that stuff's dangerous. Cause then we hear the truth and we don't, we don't always <laughs> want to, we can't handle the truth. So I actually presented an idea to a church once and they did not like it, um, of having like regular, what I called listening sessions. So mm-hmm. I, I suggested that they do it every Monday, just every Monday every Monday evening, the pastor's there. And the whole goal of the evening is for people to come in and ask questions and the pastor to listen to what the people who showed up had to say. And immediately the, the concern was, well, that, how is that not going to devolve into a vicious argument, you know, or, uh, amongst people who have different opinions and all this. And, um, my, my aim on it or perspective on it was, well, that would be good if that happened, because <laughs> then the pastor could demonstrate how to show truth and love and how yeah. to have a good faith conversation with people who disagree with each other. Like 
let's not be afraid of conflict or the difficult conversation. Let's take advantage of the opportunity to show how to have a, a healthy, difficult conversation. And yeah. if you open that up in the form of something like a listening session, then, you know, I, I can't see how that would be anything but good. But do you guys see any obvious issues with that? Not necessarily. Other, I mean, like, yes, I, in an ideal world, that would be good. But I think if we're going to be honest, I think a lot of people don't know how to defend their position. They feel it, but they, they can't articulate it. They can't. And if we're going to be honest, there's a whole bunch of people who go to our church. And I know there are, it's like this for other churches as well, that they couldn't have a, they couldn't have an intelligent conversation about doctrine, you know, like, okay, let's talk about doctrine. Let's talk about, you know, our core beliefs and our you know, biblical beliefs. Uh, a lot of people couldn't, they just know, Oh, I like this church cause I feel good. I like, and mm -hmm. so that's what their arguments are. That's where their, 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 uh, engagement lies. Whenever they start talking mm -hmm. to people about things like that, it's all about feeling. And, uh, and that's the problem mm -hmm. in my, in my opinion. Yeah. That and public forums of any kind, whether it's religious or not tend to devolve <laughs> into conflict or, screaming matches or one-upsmanship or, and, uh, that's, that's difficult to avoid in those kinds of settings. Uh, I, I tend to think that you can accomplish that same kind of listening strategy in one-on-one -on -one conversations, mm -hmm. but you have to be engaging people who aren't part of your church. Uh, and mm -hmm. if you're not doing that, then, you know, then we then we have to ask ourselves: Are we engaged in making disciples? Yeah. Are we engaged in reaching people who don't know Jesus? Because if I'm not having conversation with people who aren't part of my church, well, then I'm not modeling what I'm telling my people they need to be doing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and uh, something we had Gerald Brooks with us recently at Summit, and he's another friend of Back Forty. But um, Gerald, one of the things he said was. To honk every time we, yeah. <laughs> friend of back for you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so one of the things Gerald said is the quickest way to build a church is to be mad at what other people are mad at. Yeah, and um, and that's the world we live in where um, I've got people that leave our church all the time because I'm not mad at I'm not mad enough at the things they're mad at. Mm -hmm. They they want me to take a very public stance on things that it's like, well, this is extra biblical. Like this isn't this isn't core to who we are or what we're trying to do in people's lives. So could we have a conversation about critical race theory in church? Yeah. Is that going to be helpful to, um, to establishing the gospel and to moving people's hearts and no, but what it's going to do is it's going to help people who, who have the same position that I espouse to go, yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. And all it's going to do is polarize yeah. and move people away from gospel. But what we're going to do is we're going to have more people that are, that are rallied around something that is not even central to the gospel. And uh, so I just, those are some of the things that I think we get into whenever we start having moments like that. And so when you talk about the, having the one-on-one -on -one conversations, that's where that becomes really valuable because yeah. we sit down and we talk through that stuff and we're not, we're not just a soundbite at that point. We're not just, you know, we can see the nuance because most issues, there's a lot of nuance to it. Mm -hmm. And so like when in listening, you know, what you're just describing you could you could have a conversation with nuance, but the problem is maybe the forum is more public than private. And, right. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. And just a couple quick things, and I, th I think we probably need to move on. But um, you know, in regard to that, like uh, number one, as I was, you know, just as Mel was talking, I was thinking, okay, 
the only thing I think, you know, in Scripture, the only thing we see Jesus angry about, uh, well, two things, I guess. He's angry about sin, right? God's mm-hmm. angry about sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then Jesus in particular is angry at the religious people, right? And so when we start to turn our attention to what honestly may not even be peripheral issues and get off the centrality of the gospel, uh, then we get into the weeds and the gospel gets lost. Man, if there's anything that in any time that we've needed to make sure that we are focusing on the good news of Jesus, yeah. it's in the climate we live in now. And I just don't have time for that other stuff. It's not that I don't want to have a conversation about it. I won't, you know, I'll, I'll be glad to share with people if they want to talk one-on-one, that kind of thing. But I, I don't have any time for that in regard to what we do as a church. Mm. Just, yeah. You know. Um. I think I could probably push back on that a little bit, but I'm not going to because we used up a good bit of time on that. We can maybe save that for a different... We can uh, have a conversation one-on-one, Michael. Yeah. That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. We're not going to do a listening session is what you're saying. So. Uh, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about leadership development and maybe let's talk about it from like a rural perspective. Um, how can pastors in a rural, rural setting identify people with high kingdom potential? Like, So let's just start with that question. Say you don't have a massive talent pool to choose from. Say you don't have a major prosperous city to attract talent, those sorts of things, what would you do? What would be step one um, in pastoring a smaller church in terms of finding somebody who has high kingdom potential? So can we define kingdom potential? Yeah, maybe somebody who's humble and teachable, somebody who uh, has a servant's heart. I think that's probably the the core beginnings of kingdom potential, someone who has a calling on their life. So I wouldn't say that it's somebody who uh, has to have you know, perfect, well-developed theology right out of the gate or somebody who is an excellent performer in terms of music or whatever it is, I think they would probably have to have humility. They'd have to be teachable. Uh They'd have to have a calling on their life. Those kind of uh, intangibles, which make up a servant would be the, I would call that, that, that the ground level of high kingdom potential. And then the other stuff can be trained and cultivated by people who are masters of their craft. Okay. I would probably start with this. Um, we very rarely will people will people who are um uh people have greater kingdom potential to use that language than we do attracted to our ministry so um if i'm a level 7 leader very few level 10 leaders are going to be attracted to me to follow me so one of the very first things i would tell leaders to do is make sure you are stretching yourself and growing yourself and because you can't control the people around you, you can't control the people who show up, but you can control you. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I would say really work on your character, really work on your capacity, make sure that you are growing as a leader because um, maybe you're a level four leader and you're unhappy because you're getting level three leaders. Well, what if you become a level six leader, right? So yeah. that's the first thing I would say is grow your leadership because you can control that, but you can't control some of the other things. Mm hmm. Uh, so when you're drawing people from a smaller talent pool, so this, I I don't think is an indictment of smaller churches. It's just the fact that the populations are smaller. So there's Mm -hmm. less people, there's less of a talent pool. Um, do you change your approach in terms of, uh, like how much you're willing to keep someone around or how much you're willing to invest Mm -hmm. in someone? Uh, how, like what the standard is in terms of talent, does that need to change in relation to the talent pool? I don't think so. 
um, I think I, th- I think that we have to be realistic in terms of w- whether or not someone is is going to reach their potential. You know, I mean, I think you just there has to be a shelf life on that, uh, and and not to be not you know not to abandon somebody or you know uh whatever the case may be but to recognize that okay this is their lid right it's not going to be fair to them or to your church or you know to continue to invest in somebody who's not going to grow past a certain level and that's okay there's nothing wrong with that but I don't think that you can go, okay, well, because my talent pool is smaller, I'm going to continue to invest in this individual or in this thing, uh, even though I feel like we've reached a limit. Well, then you're just spinning your wheels, and, mm-hmm. and there may be a, you know, another arena or another person that you can you know, begin to invest in. So I don't, I don't think you can adjust it just solely based on the size of your organization. Well, I will say, I think... Um, I think you adjust your uh, expectations at the beginning because um, in a smaller town with fewer human resources, um, it is going to be harder to, so if you expect, okay, let me give you an example. You guys understand Nashville churches in Nashville. They're, they're, eight deep at musicians. Yeah. Like, they don't have a problem attracting yeah, musicians. They've yeah. got studio musicians sitting on the bench cause they're not good enough to yeah. be on stage. Right. Um, that is not the case in Indiana, Pennsylvania or in Shalakta or in, you know, any of these small towns right. around us. Right. Um, so I think what we have to do is, is adjust the expectations on the front end that we're not going to have a talent pool like that. And, and if we think we are, then no one's ever going to be good enough to do ministry yeah. with us. So I think we adjust the expectations on the front end and just go, okay, I understand but I'm still going to have high expectations for what the output is and what we're ultimately going to be, you know, that we, we invest resources we do. And I think at some point there is a time and I don't know if there's a magic level where we go, okay, we're tapped out. Like I've invested all I can and we're done. But I think that's probably the case for a lot of people where you go, okay, there's this diminishing return where you're not willing to give what the ministry needs or you're not able to, and that's okay. Um, so if, if, if we develop somebody and the best they're ever going to be is a level three leader, great. Then let's maximize them as a level three leader, wherever that is. Um, and let's stop trying to turn them into a level five or yeah, whatever it is. Yeah. But at the same time, um, we've got to get that started somewhere. And I think it is important to have good expectations and high expectations for anybody who joins a team. Yeah. But did that, did we answer the question you were even asking? Yeah. So the okay. question was, and it could, it could help that I repeat it just for people listening. The, the question was, um, what would you do if you had a smaller talent pool? Do you adjust yeah. your your strategy in terms of measuring talent, in terms of investing in people and mm-hmm. that sort of thing? Yeah, I think you guys answered that really well. So, okay. So imagine then that someone shows up who has high kingdom potential and you recognize it and they're willing and they're they're ready to go. Tell me what the process looks like and let's be as specific as possible. Like day one, they show up to church, they want to serve, they want to get involved, maybe even at the highest levels. What does your process look like for developing that person? Uh, and just walk me through it as specific as possible. And maybe some of the things you can share also are what pitfalls are there that you would really want to avoid with someone like that? Are, are we talking about in our context at Summit or just in general? I think maybe we should focus like it principles on... Principles across 
maybe general principles yeah, yeah. Uh, that would also apply to a smaller church setting. Um, so this is going to sound like I'm talking about both sides of my mouth. I think when you encounter somebody who has high kingdom potential, um, the temptation, cause I've been part of small churches and brand new churches. And the temptation is to thrust them into leadership immediately, yep. give them too much too fast. Yeah. Um, and so I would, I would strongly caution against that. Um, but the other side of that, the pendulum swings the end the other way and you give to, to, um, you give too slowly right? because if somebody is high capacity, you know, in, in a lot of places we go, Oh, Hey, we're not going to ask them to serve because they're very busy, but busy people are the people you want serving because they're the people that are accomplishing stuff, getting stuff done. They're achieving a lot. And so you want to engage that person, but you just want to make sure that they have a good understanding of your culture and what the expectations are and what you see in them and what you desire for them before you just stick them in a Sunday school class or in a room with kids or, you know, so I would say, don't give them too much too fast. You know, if somebody shows up and they've got a, 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 you know, this history of church after church and dysfunction and challenges with pastors, don't fall in love with talent. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, really look for anointing as well and character and not just mm-hmm. like, okay, this person fills a spot for us, man, they play the guitar. Let's put them on stage. You're like, whoa, yeah. whoa, 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 wait just a minute, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that's what I was, I was thinking as well. Like when you do begin to give them responsibility, give them responsibilities in areas that, uh, I don't want to say are less critical, but potentially less damaging, if that makes sense. Like, don't thrust them into a teaching role right away um, because because you don't know them well enough yet. You know what I mean? And you don't know mm-hmm. if they know, you know, Adam from a hole in the ground or whatever. You know, you don't. There's there's a trust level that has to be developed there that has to be grown, uh, and that doesn't mean that you don't give them responsibility. That doesn't mean that you don't begin to utilize them in different areas. But make sure that you're you're slow in in putting them in critical positions that that can um, affect the vision and direction of your church. Well, and part of that I think is um, I, I would I would probably ask that person to grab coffee, like you know. If, yeah. if I'm having a conversation with them, and I do this here at Summit, even first sometimes the first time I meet somebody. I will say, man, I'd love to get coffee. Would you be interested? And yeah, I would. Okay. Hey, let's, you know, let's set up a time to talk because then you're going to be able to discern in those conversations like, oh, okay. Yeah, man, this person would be a great fit or, oh my gosh, no, this, this person's charismatic, but they are not what they appear to be. Yeah. And so, man, let's spend some time with them. Let's get to know them. Let's get to know their heart. Um, because uh, man, we can, we can all be, um, charmed by people. And especially if we're in need, if we're going, man, I've got this hole in my ministry and we see somebody, we might be going, oh my gosh, they're the perfect fit. But once we get to know them, we're going to know like, oh yeah, no, 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 they're, they're, they're not ready. Or man, maybe they are ready. Once you get to know them a little bit, you're like, yeah, they are, they've been presented on a platter from God for us, for this season, for this (laughs) moment. Right. But that's where you've got to, you've got to figure that out. You can't just put somebody in a position. So that segues nicely into another question, which is, uh, what is a good, what's a smart investment strategy for uh, a person who you would want to put in leadership or put in a particular role? And what I mean, I mean, specifically, like in terms of resources, like how much should a church 
pour into someone um, in a way that lends itself to the proper development of that person, but also protects the organization or protects the church. Like you want to avoid something like a sunk cost fallacy where it's like, oh, we've dumped so much into this person. I'm going to, I'm just going to ignore these other things that are really actually pretty threatening because of how much we've dumped into this person. It seems like big churches make this mistake all the time, repeatedly over and over um, in terms of like celebrity pastors Mm -hmm. and people who can really bring people in. And uh, you know, I think one of the problems with that even is that when uh, a minister becomes powerful enough, he he creates incentive structures. And we might have talked about this before for uh, yes men to surround that person because just being in orbit of that person uh, builds your resume and mm-hmm. increases your salary yeah. and all of those things. Um, and so maybe drawing it back to like the smaller church. You have someone who comes in, is a, has high kingdom potential, wants to be a leader, and you have to decide, what do I do with my resources yeah. with this person? How would you approach that from a small church setting? Do you have any thoughts on that, Todd? Um, so, I mean, if you're in a small church, uh, when we're talking about resources, we probably aren't, at least initially, talking <laughs> about financial resources. because they're piles of cash. Yeah, they're not yeah. there. <laughs> So the, the bigger issue, I think, in terms of resources for a small church would be the amount of time yeah. and human resource that you invest into that person. And so uh, I think that's a little harder to quantify, um, but I do think that the key to that is bringing them alongside you and, you know, giving giving them access to you and mm-hmm. and gaining access to them because you're going to get a couple of things out of that. You're going to begin to be able to assess their, their character and how solid they are. You're going to be able to begin to invest some of your character and, and your vision and your value and your church's DNA into that person before you set them loose to, to run something on their own. So bring them alongside you. You know, uh, if there's a new, if there's a new initiative or a new ministry that you feel like you you want your church to begin to invest in, but you don't have the human resource to do that, but, hey, if I had this person who could work alongside me, I'm not ready to turn them loose yet completely on that thing on their own, but if I could bring them alongside me and have them do a lot of this work while we walk side by side, then I can learn a whole lot about them and push the vision of the church forward at the same time. And then there, you know, there comes a point at which you go, okay, I feel confident in the investment that I've made. Now I'm going to be able to turn them loose to, to do this on their own and then replicate that thing all over again. Mm-hmm. That's good. What would you say is an acceptable level of risk? How much margin should you keep between yourself, your organization and potential talent or people that you're trying to bring up? Like, do you have a way that you quantify that or do you just go by intuition? Like, how does that? Uh... Uh, I mean, for me, I, um, this probably is not great, but I mean, I do a lot of things based on feel and what, you know, intuition. Um, I think it's the Holy spirit, you know, myself, but some people would call it flying by the seat of your pants or whatever. But <laughs> I think, I think a lot of people, I mean, for me, I can, I feel like I have a pretty good uh, ability to judge people. Uh, and I've, I've had some swings and misses too, but, um, so yeah, I, I don't have a, a standard rule, but I think I, I kind of go based on my gut and what I feel. And I, I, I put a lot of, a lot of weight into that personally. Yeah. I mean, I think pray, you know, it, uh, it is, it is an indictment on us that that is often our second choice, right? Mm-hmm. 
pray. Pray first. Before you ever ask that person to do anything, pray. Mm -hmm. And pray until you feel like you have a confidence in what you should do. Um, And... And that's not to say that I don't mean by that I don't mean by that that you are confident that it's going to work out perfectly, mm-hmm. right? But you have a confidence that this is where I feel God is leading me, you know, and and I'm going to trust Him for the outcome, and and then I mean, ask ask people that are around you, like if you have. If you have leaders in your church that you trust mm-hmm. and there's a new new person who has kingdom potential that you want to begin to invest in ask those leaders to spend some time with that person give you their impression you know it's a fallacy when we think that we've got to move immediately now we don't want to move slowly you know we don't want to be lazy or um maybe lazy isn't the right word but we don't want to be too cautious to the degree that then we're not able to push the vision of the church forward and to, you know, do what God's calling us to do. But it's a fallacy when we think that we've got to be in a rush um, because that indicates that we think that God somehow isn't in control of this timetable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I mean, we're kind of deviating a little bit. I would say incremental change leads to incremental impact. So if you're in a situation where you know, like, okay, hey, we can take it slow and we don't need to move the world with this decision, that's great. Let's move slow. Let's make incremental changes. But I think there are some times that it's like, nope, we need to make a splash. We need to do something really big. And it's like, all right, you're going to, it's going to be risky. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're going to make a big change and it might have a big impact, but it might backfire in a big way as well. Yeah. So, so sometimes you just have to accept big risk if you, it's a precondition to it, to yeah. entering into a bigger reward. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Well, and I would say too, especially when we're talking about people, there is always risk. You know, no matter what your vetting process (laughs) looks like, there is always risk. Yeah. Uh, And so if we're, if we're going to spend our whole, you know, existence being risk averse, then we end up not doing anything. And I'm telling you that from a person who is pretty risk averse, like I am not, I'm not a natural risk taker. I'm fairly cautious and slow about things. Um, But if I let that be the thing that drives my decision-making process as a leader, I'll never get anything done. Yeah. Uh, and so I know for me, man, I have to go spend some time with Jesus and go, Lord, I am afraid and I need you to give me wisdom. I need you to give me strength. I need you to, you know, push me out of the nest, maybe whatever the case may be. But like we leaders, we just can't, be risk averse all the time or we won't do anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so maybe something that might, that pastors might benefit from hearing is that even level 10 leaders, even, Mm -hmm. even people who've done everything right, still swing and miss sometimes. And that, yeah. And like, so, um, and every leader listening to this podcast right now, um, they all know exactly what that is because they've all been burned. They all had 
maybe you planted your church and there were people in your core team and they they sang your praise and we're going to be here till the day we die, whatever it is. And then <laughs> two six, months later, yes, yeah, two <laughs> months later, they were gone and they were burning you an effigy. Or maybe you're a pastor that you came to a church and the board that brought you in, oh, you're going to be the greatest pastor ever. And, you know, two years later, the entire board is gone and they've started another church down the road. Oh, yeah. and, you know, whatever it might be. We've, every one of us have experienced that kind of stuff where we thought it was going to be one way and it turned out some, some way else, uh, a, a different way. And uh, so I think for us, it just, we have to be okay with that. We have to be okay with going, hey, sometimes being faithful and doing what God calls us to do means we're going to experience loss. Yeah. And that's just part of it. Um, and, and that is true, whether you're at a church of 10 or 10,000, every leader I talk to has been betrayed and hurt and disappointed and taken risks on people that they shouldn't have. And that's just part of it. Yeah. And so you shouldn't allow those, when those things do happen, you shouldn't allow, you shouldn't think that that's necessarily a reflection on your leadership no. ability because then, it's then just, you will become risk averse to the point yeah. where you're just terrified to make any decisions mm -hmm. in the wake of that. Wow. That's good. So, okay, so you get past the point of identification and the initial steps of development and, um, you know, you start to build confidence in a person. Uh, let's talk about like the mentor apprenticeship relationship. So I would say that one thing that would be a mistake is sending someone off to seminary uh, because you, you don't have enough time to mentor them. Um, and you can push back on that if you think that, that that's wrong. Um, I think that if you have someone who has high kingdom potential and you have the tools to develop mm -hmm. that person, you should mentor that person. Um, and so maybe we can talk about the mentor re apprenticeship relationship and what does that look like in a small church context? What does that look like in terms of time spent during the week? Like how would you approach something like a mentor apprenticeship? Go ahead. Um, I mean, it comes back to time. It comes back to what you were talking about earlier, Todd, just investing yourself. Um, so it depends on how much, how much they need of you and how much you are able to give. Um, but I think little things like just getting lunch together are big because we, we tend to focus on formal things like curriculum or what am I going to teach them or, yeah. but I mean, this is a cliche and cliches are cliches for a reason, but like, I, I really do think that leadership is caught more than it's taught. So the more that I have people around me that see my heart and see how I respond and see how I make decisions it's less about sitting them down in a classroom and teaching them than it is about like just letting them live life with you. And it's almost as if we've seen models of that in the Bible, but I can't think of any off the top of my head. So, <laughs> um, and so I think that's huge. I think that's really important. And I wouldn't, I would never say no one should go to seminary, you know, or, yeah. or you should just, cause I think everybody's path is a little different, but I don't think seminary is essential for somebody to be able to, to, pastor or do ministry. I think it, it is about education. It's a, but yeah. education doesn't necessarily mean you've got, um, you know, an MDiv. It might mean that you've been educated informally. That's not reflected on a, you know, um, uh, some sort of, um, you know, degree plan or, yeah. you know, anything like that. So, uh, let me look, I think it was Dr. Brooks that was talking about education the other day. Uh, and said that you mean friend of the podcast, friend Gerald of the Brooks. podcast, yeah. Gerald ding, ding. Brooks. That's right. Um, but he was talking about, well, essentially that 
and I'm, I thought I put it in my notes. I'm bringing up my notes from the session, but I don't see it. But he was talking about how that education um, is is not the same as gaining knowledge. Like an educated person yeah. continues to grow, right? Mm-hmm. Our ed, Being educated is the ability to apply knowledge, apply the things that you're learning to your situation, Um and I can't remember exactly how he said it, but I think I think that's part of what we have to wrestle with in terms of seminary versus apprenticeship mm-hmm. or what those look like. And and I think that too, we so my my seminary education, my Bible college education has been extremely beneficial to me in terms of teaching and in terms of biblical knowledge and and, and um, biblical literacy and those kinds of things. Um, it, it it wasn't particularly helpful, if I'm going to be honest, in terms of how to lead people, mm-hmm. how to administrate a department if you're a department head in a church, how to build a team, how to, you know. Um, and so, but I don't think it was an either or. I think it's both and. I had to have mentors who were bringing me along and and showing me how to lead people and investing in my abilities in that way alongside the the you know the bible education that i received in school um so i don't think it's an either or kind of thing uh is there an environment where both can happen i I think so but i don't think that that exists in every place and so especially in a rural setting where you're like if you're a single solo pastor um you're not going to have the time or resources to provide a seminary education for someone you know um that doesn't mean you can't mentor them as a leader, as a pastor, as a shepherd, um, but maybe it's a both-and kind of thing, and you have to assess that. It depends on what that person's calling is, what they, what they feel God's leading them toward, uh, and and we have to be sensitive to that as leaders, too, and try our best to, to guide the people that God's placed under us in the direction that would be best for them to accomplish what God's calling them to. Well, that's a, that's a great point, because what's best for them might not be to be on staff at my church. Yeah. Um, or to, hey, I've raised them up and I'm developing them and the best thing for them might not be that they spend the rest of their life in ministry in this church. And that's the thing that's challenging um, for us because pastors are managing what we've got. We're trying to raise up. We're trying to develop. We're trying to grow. We're trying to reach lost people. And we see the need. We see, man, I need people, you know. Um, And so when we raise up and develop somebody and they leave and they go somewhere else, that's painful um, in the short term, but I, I've, I've had to remind myself of this over the years. Like what if the greatest thing I ever do in ministry is raise up somebody who becomes the next Billy Graham or yeah. raise up somebody who goes and pastors and plants an incredible church? Um, how much of a kingdom disservice would that have been if I would have been selfish and kept them and said, no, no, no I need you to run this department for me when their kingdom potential was so much greater. Yeah. Um, and so that's where as leaders it's dangerous because we might lose people we raise up, but um, but it's more dangerous if we're not raising people up and it's yeah. worse for the kingdom and it's w- worse for us ultimately. So mm-hmm. I think we just have to have that mindset that, Hey, we're going to, we're going to look for the kingdom win first rather than just what is best for our church in this context. Yeah. You know, I, I grew up in a, a pretty small church. Um, and even still like the church where I grew up is, I mean, it's a small town, it's a smaller church, you know, the, like the, 
the attendance, I don't, you know, like 150 was a huge Sunday for us, right? That kind of thing. Um, and, and still, it hovers right around 100 people. Right? It's just a, that it's never really gone past that plateau. Part of that is the population of the city. And part of, you know, it just, anyway, all of that to say, I can think just in my generation, uh, and I, I've been I've been gone from there for a long time, so I'm not sure past this. But just from my generation, like I think of guys that were five years older and younger, so that ten years around my age. Just off the top of my head, we had a youth group of about forty kids, and out of those forty kids, I can think right now off the top of my head of ten or eleven. Guys and, and girls who are in ministry today, who are pastoring churches, who are missionaries, who are leading in, you know, in capacities in other places. Our, if our church hadn't had a heart to release people, mm-hmm. and, and if my church had, and, and we celebrated it. It wasn't like it was like, you know, I mean, they were sad to see us go, but we celebrated the fact that God was raising up and calling people to go other places. And if we're not if we don't have that kind of culture that's willing to release people, then then God, I don't believe God will trust us with people with high kingdom capacity yeah. because we're going to try to hoard those resources for ourselves rather than having a mindset that um, that says, hey, we can have a much greater impact than just what, you know, our our little corner of... Yeah, our village, yeah. our hamlet, our... yeah. That segues really nicely into the um, the full circle sort of closing approach to this topic. But before I ride that segue, I just wanted to say, because this has been bouncing around in my head, my favorite Gerald Brooks quote from whenever he was here was he was talking about the motivation for education. And he said, there is no future in dumb. And, <laughs> that is true. And Wiser words have never been spoken. Uh, yeah, that, that was fun. Okay, so... Um, Okay, so we're talking about releasing you had, people. You had the perfect segue. And I didn't take and it. And you blew it because you wanted to mention the Gerald Brooks quote, but that's okay. Friend yeah. of the podcast, Gerald Brooks. Yeah, friend of the podcast, by the way. Um, okay, so you're, you're releasing people out, right? So let's talk about how do you know when it's time to retool? And so you can think of this a couple of ways. Say the church grows, the vision grows, and it doesn't look like it did look 10 years ago. Um, but you still have some of the same people serving who were serving 10 years ago. And maybe let's say that some of the people who were serving 10 years ago have also grown and matured to the point where maybe they're not, they no longer have the capacity to operate in the role that they were before. So let's just assume there's a retooling process and you can push back on that if you don't think that there is, but let's assume that there is. Um, How do you have those conversations with people and how do you know when it's time to swap in somebody else and what would you do with the person who was previously occupying that role? Um, Those are hard conversations to have. And I would say in my experience, it's one of the top reasons a lot of churches stagnate is because a senior leader doesn't want to have those conversations because they stink. It (laughs) stinks to talk to somebody and tell them you're not as valuable to the organization in this role as you used to be. Um, But that happens all the time, whether it's a, you know, a a nursery coordinator who is bitter and angry and runs off the parents, you know, (laughs) um, like, okay, you're not going to get any kids in your church if none of the parents can come to church because the nursery coordinator, but um, but it's just necessary. And so I think one of the key things when having that conversation is to always, <clears throat> always have the backdrop of 
what the church needs. Hey, I know you love our church. You've been part of this church a long time, and I am so grateful for the way you've served it, man. And think of all that's happened. Well, we appreciate that. And I know you would never want to hurt the church, but one of the things I see is is that maybe you're not as effective in this as you used to be. And and I think there's still some real ways you could help the church, but I think I think if we moved you into a different role, that would that would really be beneficial and to give the, the you know this op- ministry an opportunity to grow because I know you love it and I know you're for it and and then you got to give them some time and you I think you you can't just make the decision you got to have a conversation about it and go hey let's let's shift this and um and I think once you do people can come around but I think man initially their first response because I've had this conversation with staff with leaders in our in our church. Their initial response is, you don't need me. You, you think I'm in, not valuable. You don't think I'm important. And it's like, no, 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 no. You've got to combat that. So uh, that takes time because in the moment, it doesn't matter what you say. What they're hearing is, you don't want me on this team. Um, and so you've got to affirm that. You've got to come mm-hmm. back and support. You've got to come back and remind them and celebrate them and, you know, that kind of thing. So it's hard. It's really hard. Um, and I don't mind hard conversations, but I still hate those conversations. So. Mm-hmm. I think you just got to lean into it. And like I said, I think you, you keep reminding them how much they love the organization, how much they love the department, how much they love, you know, the people they're serving. And one of the most loving things they can do is to move into a different role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Mel's right. Those conversations, some of those conversations are absolutely unavoidable. It's going to happen and it has to happen. I mean, mm-hmm. the if your church is not growing and changing and you're not, having those kinds of conversations well then you have to ask well why why aren't we why aren't we facing decisions about what's the next season look like i mean why why are we why are we seemingly stuck in this season <laughs> um and then too i would say like i said some of those conversations are inevitable but i think you can create a culture that limits the numbers of those conversations you have to have i know it's kind of cliche at this point but you know it's true like leaders raise up their replacement like if you're Mm -hmm. training your replacement well then if you've trained a replacement for yourself right if you've developed a leader behind you that you can hand that thing to well then there's no need to have a conversation about this isn't the role you should be in any longer because that leader is already looking for the next thing but if you've got a leader in a position that isn't raising up people behind them and isn't asking questions about what does my next season of leadership look like, what is it that got, you know, then that's a problem in and of itself that's yeah. going to create that difficult conversation. So if you can create a culture that is forward thinking, forward looking, that is developing leaders, then you can not eliminate those conversations, but you can mitigate the numbers of those conversations you have to have. I think that's one of the things, honestly, and, and you know, that's one of the things that that we do well at the summit. It's one of the things that Mel does well as a leader is that I don't think we have to have a ton of those kinds of conversations because we are always looking at the next season. We are always talking about bringing up the people that are behind us. And if, if we're not doing that, then we're going to stagnate. It's inevitable. It just will happen. Well, and <clears throat> this is, this is not going to be a popular statement. One of the reasons pastors struggle with that is because they've stagnated, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, and so, um, 
it's better if you have a culture where people recognize they need to make a change than having to have the conversation. That's true of pastors as well. If you're the senior leader of your organization and, um, and maybe you've been there too long, but you don't recognize you've been there too long and you've got a culture where nobody can say, Hey pastor, maybe, yeah. maybe you need to look at what's next. Uh, not in a hateful way, but in a the same way I was just saying, Hey, you love this organization. You love this church. Yeah. You've spent your life building it, but you know, you would never want to hurt it, but, but now you're kind of hurting it. And, um, yeah. and so that's hard because a lot of pastors are in that position. So it's hard to facilitate those kind of conversations because mm-hmm. we're unwilling to have those ourselves. So, yeah. And a lot of times, I mean, as a leader, we fail to bring up somebody behind us mm-hmm. um, because we're afraid that we'll be irrelevant if we do. Mm-hmm. And in my experience, that's because we have a lack of vision about the future. Mm-hmm. We're just trying to maintain a, maintain a status quo rather than grow into the next season. When you are bringing up someone to replace you, what is an acceptable what is a tolerable level of decrease in excellence? Because even if you train that person yourself, they haven't been doing it. You know, mm-hmm. they haven't been preaching three sermons a weekend for the last 20 years. They haven't been leading worship for 20 years. Like they haven't yeah. been actively doing the same thing. So there's probably going to be a drop. I mean, so how, like, well, when you measure that, well, <laughs> I guess maybe that's a blanket statement, but I mean, like, yeah, <laughs> it depends on how, it depends on how good the leader often, who is often being there will replaced. be a drop. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, Friend of the show, Carrie Newhoff, uh, <laughs> says uh, says that if they can do it half as good as you with upside, give it to them. Huh. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. Wow. So, and, and he talks about that. It, I think the, you know, the old, kind of the old way of thinking was 80%. If they're 80% as good as you, then it's time to give it to them. Uh, but he says 50% with upside. And I think that's, that's critical. Like if 50% is their cap, well, you don't hand it to them, right? But if 50% with upside, get hand it off, give it to them. That's great. Yeah, and, and I, I I would suggest that as well. Um, and I think there's some areas that are easier to do that than others, um, you know, especially, you know, behind the scenes stuff. It's easy to do that. Um, you know, you've got to make some decisions when it comes to platform stuff and what you're doing on a weekend or what you're doing. That's going to be very visual. You know, mm-hmm. if somebody's producing graphics for you and things like that, that's where it might, maybe it won't be 50, but the, the principle's still true, I believe. Um, so that's something, that's something I would, uh, definitely say, Hey, sacrifice some of your excellence, um, for the chance to develop somebody. Yeah. That's really good. We've covered the full circle of sort of team building and leadership development all the way to the the part of retiring leaders and retiring people. And so that's that's been good. Uh, do you guys have any closing thoughts that you'd like to add? I'm glad that we closed the circle. We we yeah. you know you don't have to go to I any other an source. Circle. Yeah, you don't have to that's go to right. any other source. <laughs> yeah, for development or uh, <laughs> for you know nature abhors a vacuum. I'm glad that's we right. didn't leave so, one. We got it. <laughs> Hey, everyone, don't forget to rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to it. And also subscribe at summitpodcast.church forward slash subscribe. Again, that is your one-stop shop for all of the podcast content we create here at Summit Church. Thank you for listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and we will see you in the next episode.